0: Hey guys, this is Shivaraman again from Johns Hopkins University. So when we last met, we were talking a little bit about acute pancreatitis, and specifically making a diagnosis that differentiated acute edematous and necrotizing pancreatitis. So now once you've made the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis, I think your job doesn't just stop there. The next step is to figure out whether the patient has any number of different complications that could potentially affect their ultimate clinical outcomes. So why don't we talk about a number of different complications that you could encounter on CT, and specifically, what kind of nomenclature you should be using to describe these complications in your dictations. Now, that may seem a little bit semantic, right? How does it matter what exact terminology I use? But I think it really does matter. We want to be on the same page with our clinicians, especially our gastroenterology and surgical colleagues because the terminology that we use can ultimately have a tremendous impact on how that patient is treated and intervened upon. So why don't we start by talking about what I consider to be amongst the most important uh, complications of acute pancreatitis, and that's infected pancreatic necrosis. Now, infected pancreatic necrosis, by definition, means that you have a superinfection of that necrotic pancreatic parenchyma after it's been necrosed and avascular. Now this happens much more commonly than you think, probably about 20-30% to 30% of all patients with necrotizing pancreatitis. And unfortunately, if you compare these patients with those who just have sterile necrosis, they have a significantly higher mortality rate. In fact, the mortality rate is essentially 100% if it's untreated. Now this usually happens about 2-3 to three weeks after the clinical onset of symptoms, but I'd say I wouldn't necessarily follow that too closely. I've seen a few cases just in the last few months where patients have had infected necrosis within about a week. So it does happen, and I think that if you suspect it, you've got to raise the possibility on your, C- on your CT report. Now, to make this diagnosis can be very difficult based on a CT scan. In the vast majority of cases, it's just going to look like a really bad case of pancreatic necrosis, a big phlegmon, lots of inflammation, and lots of fat stranding. However, there is one finding that can allow you to make this diagnosis with a high degree of specificity, and that's the presence of extraluminal gas. If I see extraluminal gas within the pancreatic bed, in the vicinity of this necrotic pancreatic parenchyma. In my mind, that is equivalent to the diagnosis of infected pancreatic necrosis. You don't stop and go, you're gonna go straight to the dictation and you're gonna say the patient has infected pancreatic necrosis. You are not gonna get gas with just run-of-the-mill sterile necrosis. And this is really a critically important diagnosis to make. The treatment for infected pancreatic necrosis is not simply IV antibiotics and conservative management. These patients need to go to the operating room. They need a surgeon to do a necrosectomy and surgical debridement. Now, in those cases where there is no extraluminal gas, but there's still a high clinical index of suspicion that there may be infected necrosis, you may be asked to do a biopsy of the pancreatic parenchyma to see if it grows out one organism or another. So here's a relatively classic example. This patient has horrible pancreatic necrosis. Much of the pancreatic head and neck are not enhancing. There's actually been hemorrhagic transformation. There's a large hematoma centered in the right and central abdomen. But most importantly, notice how there are multiple foci of ectopic gas immediately adjacent to the celiac trunk. That is infected pancreatic necrosis by definition, and this patient ultimately went to the operating room for a necrosectomy and debridement. Here's another, even more foreboding example. This patient not only has absolute non-enhancement of much of the pancreatic head, neck, and body, but there's actually an air fluid level. There's a tremendous amount of gas here within the pancreatic bed, and this was a horrible case of pancreatic, infected pancreatic necrosis that ultimately went to the operating room for a necrosectomy. Now, a second diagnosis that I think is critical for us to be able to make and alert the surgeons to is central gland necrosis, which for many years was described as the disconnected duct syndrome. Now, by definition, central gland necrosis involves necrosis of the central part of the gland, so the neck and the body, with sparing of the head and tail. So if you think about what happens in this kind of of scenario, the entire central portion of the gland is necrotic, and not only is the parenchyma necrotic, but so is the pancreatic duct as well. But the pancreatic duct and the parenchyma at the level of the head and tail are still preserved. So over time, you're gonna get leakage of pancreatic enzymes into the central portion of the gland with the development of a large fluid collection. Now that fluid collection, as you can imagine, will never go away. You're gonna get continued leakage of fluid from both the head and the tail into the collection, and even if you try putting in some kind of a percutaneous drainage catheter, the persistent secretions coming in from the remaining portions of the pancreas will ensure that you're never gonna be able to remove that drain successfully. Patients with actual central gland necrosis, there's really only one treatment, or two treatments. Either they can undergo a distal pancreatectomy, which I think is probably still the most common option in most institutions, or you can put in an internal drain, typically a cyst gastrostomy. So here's an example of that. You can see that there's a large fluid collection that's rim-enhancing and loculated, and it's centered at the level of the pancreatic body. Now in this case, we weren't absolutely sure whether or not the central portion of the gland was still intact, or whether it was just severely compressed. So the patient underwent an ERCP, there was absolutely no filling of the central duct, and so the patient underwent a central or internal cyst gastrostomy. Here's another example. A big fluid collection centered in the central portion of the gland. You can see that the pancreatic duct on this MRCP image is intact both upstream and downstream, but is disrupted in the central portion of the gland at roughly the location of the fluid collection. Again, this is disrupted duct syndrome or central gland necrosis, and this patient underwent a distal pancreatectomy. So why don't we move on now and talk a little bit about what I consider to be one of the most confusing concepts when you're dealing with patients with acute pancreatitis, and that's what to do with these different fluid collections that you can develop. Now, all too often, when I look at different reports from different radiologists, I see that We tend to be very inexact when describing fluid collections in the setting of pancreatitis. People use different terms, often in the wrong context, and we tend to confuse which terms we should use in which specific scenarios. And even though it may not seem like a big deal to us when we're putting together our reports, it actually can have a tremendous impact because the utilization of specific terms carries with them very specific implications for clinical treatment. So if you use a certain term, it may imply that the patient needs to be treated conservatively. But if you were to use another term, potentially the surgeon would think about surgical debridement, maybe an internal drainage, et cetera, et cetera. So we really do want to be exact about which terms we use when describing very specific abnormalities. In general, when you have patients who have acute edematous pancreatitis, the terms that you're going to be using are acute peripancreatic fluid collection or pseudocyst, depending on the exact time course and development of the, of the fluid collection. In the acute setting, you're going to say acute peripancreatic fluid collection, but more chronically, you're going to describe fluid collections as pseudocysts. On the other hand, patients with acute necrotizing pancreatitis, the terms that you want to use are a post-necrotic fluid collection in the first few weeks, and then after a few weeks, as the collection matures, you're going to use the term walled-off pancreatic necrosis. So why don't we start by talking about fluid collections in the setting of acute edematous pancreatitis. And in the acute setting, in the first four weeks after symptom onset, the term that you're going to use is going to be an acute peripancreatic fluid collection. Now these collections are going to be relatively simple in appearance, they're going to conform to the shape of the retroperitoneum, and most importantly, you are not going to see an appreciable The collection may appear minimally loculated, but there's not gonna be much in the way of peripheral enhancement or a rind of soft tissue. Now these collections are pretty much completely filled with pancreatic enzymes, and they're almost always gonna be sterile. In fact, I can't remember the last time I saw an acute peripancreatic fluid collection that turned out to be infected. The only reason you would ever do anything about an acute peripancreatic collection is if there was some clinical suspicion for infection, because the vast majority of these collections are gonna resolve on their own. So in general, if you use this term, acute peripancreatic fluid collection, the clinicians are going to be thinking about utilizing conservative management. Now, on the other hand, collections after four weeks tend to be mature. At this point, they're going to have a well-defined wall that's made up of granulation tissue and fibrosis, and these collections at this point are going to be called pancreatic pseudocysts. Now, pancreatic pseudocysts are actually relatively common, probably 10 to 20% of patients. Now, even though these collections are well-defined and matured, Even though they have a wall and surrounding granulation tissue, the vast majority of pancreatic pseudocysts are still going to resolve spontaneously, probably about 50% or more. Only 25% of these pseudocysts will result in any kind of symptoms, and typically that's going to be pain or infection. Now most pseudocysts tend to occur in relatively classic locations, the lesser sac, the right and left anterior pararenal space. But to be honest, pancreatic pseudocysts can go almost anywhere, and in fact I've seen them track into the most unusual locations the abdominal wall, the peritoneum, the uh, the mesentery. They can go up into the mediastinum. I've seen them into the high aspect of the mediastinum and the thoracic inlet. So if you have a patient who has a history of pancreatitis and you see a weird fluid collection somewhere or another, you can at least think about the possibility of a pseudocyst. Now here's an example of a patient with acute pancreatitis, which demonstrates the relatively classic evolution of these fluid collections over time. Early on, you have a fluid collection that doesn't demonstrate much in the way of any loculation or peripheral enhancement. But over time, it becomes more and more loculated, develops a wall, it develops granulation tissue, and it goes from acute peripancreatic fluid collection ultimately to a pseudocyst. And in this case, you can see that the patient has undergone internal drainage with a cyst gastrostomy. Now, most pseudocysts tend to occur in relatively classic locations. And I'd say the most common by far is gonna be the lesser sac, largely because of the location of the pancreas. In this location, most of the time there's no symptoms, but you can get symptomatology as a result of compression of the adjacent stomach and duodenum, as in this case. Now, as I mentioned before, you can get pseudocyst tracking into very unusual locations. And here's an example of an unusual location that I've seen a few times just in the last year. In this case, there's a pseudocyst in a patient who had a recent bout of pancreatitis that's actually invaginated into the splenic hilum and ultimately intraparenchymally into the splenic parenchyma. Now, most pseudocysts are going to be managed conservatively. The majority of them are going to resolve on their own, and even those that that don't tend to basically be asymptomatic. And if it's not causing any symptoms, there's no reason to be sticking a catheter into it. But that being said, you do want to consider drainage if there's any evidence of infection, so the patient's having a fever that's unexplained, etc., etc., or if the pseudocyst is causing symptoms as a result of mass effect, and that tends to be bowel obstruction, especially in the luster sac, biliary obstruction, or even intractable pain symptoms. So many times you're going to be asked as a radiologist to drain a pseudocyst, either just aspirating it or potentially putting in some kind of a percutaneous drainage catheter. But I would recommend that you be very, very careful about ever putting a drain into a pseudocyst without understanding whether or not that pseudocyst communicates with the pancreatic duct. And remember, many of these pseudocysts will communicate with the main pancreatic duct. If there is a communication and you choose to put a drain into it, that drain's never going to come out. You're going to get persistent leakage of pancreatic enzymes from the pancreatic duct into the pseudocyst, and the pseudocyst is really never going to get any smaller. In those cases, when there is a communication with the pancreatic duct, you need to either do internal drainage, you need to do internal drainage either surgically or endoscopically. So what's the management algorithm? This is a really complicated algorithm slide and it has a lot of little arrows, a lot of little uh, words on it. It's too complicated. In general, anytime you see a pseudocyst and you're asked to put a drain into it, you're gonna ask the clinicians perform an ERCP first. If the ERCP shows any kind of a communication between the pseudocyst and the main pancreatic duct, you're going to ask that the patient be sent to gastroenterology or the surgery service for placement of an internal drain. On the other hand, if the ERCP is negative and there's no communication between the pseudocyst and the main pancreatic duct, at that point you can feel free to put in some kind of a percutaneous drainage catheter. So here's a slide demonstrating some of the options. And although percutaneous drainage is still a viable option and one that I think we utilize quite often, increasingly at Johns Hopkins, we're seeing these patients dealt with using internal drains. And by far, most commonly, this is done by the endoscopist through either the stomach or the duodenum. Rarely, you'll see a surgeon put in a drain that communicates with a limb or to the duodenum, but I'd say the majority of these are done endoscopically. So here's an example of a patient with a large fluid collection in the lesser sac. You can see that it has a well-defined wall of granulation tissue and fibrosis. So this is a pseudocyst. The patient had pancreatitis about 8 to 10 weeks ago. Now, in this case, the patient was having symptoms as a result of gastric outlet obstruction. So we did an ERCP. The ERCP showed a communication with the main pancreatic duct. So as was appropriate, we asked that the patient have an internal drain placed. And as you can see here, the patient has had an internal cyst gastroscopy placed endoscopically. Now, as opposed to the terms we've just talked about, which are utilized in patients who have acute edematous pancreatitis, there are a very different terminology that we're gonna be using in patients with acute necrotizing pancreatitis. So in the acute setting, the term that we're gonna use is a post-necrotic pancreatic fluid collection. This is in the first four weeks and typically is going to be that liquefied phlegmon or fluid collection that we see in the acute setting. Now, unlike an acute peripancreatic fluid collection in the setting of acute edematous pancreatitis, post-necrotic fluid collections tend to look really, really heterogeneous. Fluid, debris, lots of internal heterogeneity, they tend to be very, very inhomogeneous. And almost always they're associated with disruption of the duct. Now, unlike acute... peripancreatic fluid collections in edematous pancreatitis. Post-necrotic pancreatic fluid collections tend to be treated preemptively. So these have a very high risk of superinfection because of the necrotic debris that is, identified, is found within them, and so often clinicians will choose to drain these preemptively to prevent subsequent superinfection. So here's a relatively classic example of just senity, right? You can see that the pancreas is non-enhancing, there is very little residual normal pancreatic parenchyma identified, and there's a large fluid collection identified with the retroperitoneum. Notice how it's very heterogeneous. There's clearly necrotic debris, there's fat, there's all kinds of hemorrhage within it. This is a post-necrotic pancreatic fluid collection, and because this is Hopkins, we chose to preemptively drain this percutaneously. Here's another example demonstrating This time, demonstrating a patient with necrotizing pancreatitis. The pancreatic head isn't enhancing very well, and in this case, you can see a post-necrotic fluid collection that's intraparenchymal. It's actually within the pancreatic head itself. Now, these collections have a high risk of infection, and in this case, you can see that the patient has developed infected pancreatic necrosis. This is one of the reasons why at Hopkins we try to drain these preemptively, because there's such a high risk of developing an infection. Now, if for some reason you didn't drain these preemptively, after four weeks, these collections are then termed as walled-off pancreatic necrosis. These collections are much more well-defined. They're no longer just a phlegmon or ill-defined collection, but they have a well-defined wall that's made up of solid components, and they're a well-defined mature collection. Now, at this point, most cases of walled-off pancreatic necrosis tend to be sterile. The patient has made it this long without symptoms of infection, and most of them are not going to be infected. They can become infected, at which point the mortality rate can more than double. Now, in general, in terms of the management of Waldorf necrosis, most people tend to pick conservative management as long as there's no symptoms of infection. On the other hand, if there's any evidence of infection, either clinical or radiographic, i.e. internal gas, then that patient needs to have the collection drained. So here's an example of a patient who's about seven weeks after the onset of acute necrotizing pancreatitis, and you can see that this collection is well-defined, it has a well-defined wall of peripheral fibrosis and granulation tissue. Here's another example in the lesser sac, about seven or eight weeks after the initial onset of symptoms. The collection is inhomogeneous, it has internal fat, it has debris, hemorrhage, but it's well-defined, and if it's not causing symptoms, the best course of action is just conservative management. So here's a slide from radiology back in 2012 that I think summarizes some of the management options you have when dealing with these different kinds of fluid collections. Clearly, you have many different options, whether it's conservative management or percutaneous intervention or internal drainage, and I think you really need to be careful about how you describe these different collections because each of the terms you use carries with it the implication of a very different type of treatment. Now the one term that I would try to really avoid in your dictations is pancreatic abscess. This term is inexact, It's not included in the most recent revised Atlanta classification, and it really has no meaning. And you can imagine how pancreatic abscess could describe any of the collections that I've talked about over the last few minutes. As a result of the fact that pancreatic abscess carries with it such a myriad different number of meanings because it can confuse clinicians, I never use it in my dictations, and I strongly recommend that you avoid using it as well. So now that we've talked about some of the complications you can encounter in a CT scan, why don't we stop there And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the vascular complications you can encounter, as well as some of the causes of pancreatitis that you might be able to identify on a CT scan. So until next time, I'll see you later. Uh, This is Shivaraman from Johns Hopkins. Bye.